0: All right, everybody. It is Friday. Friday, March 3rd. You're listening it's to the Mo
1: Friday. News. <laughs> You're listening
0: to the Mo <laughs> News Podcast. And I'm Mosh Wanunu.
1: And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts.
0: And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, it's been a, a very eventful Thursday evening as we've been putting together this podcast.
1: Yeah, let's get straight to these headlines here. Alex Murdoch found guilty of killing his wife and son. The jury deliberating for just three hours on Thursday.
0: Yeah, we weren't expecting to get a verdict that quickly, but clearly these jurors had their minds made up and they wanted to get home to their families and move on from this. So there's a lot to discuss here.
1: That's right. And in case anyone hasn't been following, we're going to break down what this case is all about. Uh, Also, more wild winter weather and snow across California, what it means for the ongoing drought, The FBI arrested a man in Michigan that they say was looking to kill Jewish members of government in the state. The House Ethics Committee opens an investigation into George Santos. But most, what we really want to know is, can lawmakers kick him out of Congress? We're going to look at that question.
0: We'll get into that. Also, Jill, the thing I want to know, what's his real name and who is he really?
1: (laughs) Will the real George Santos please stand up? Plus signs that global warming is now hitting the South Pole. Moshe, of course, is on this day in history.
0: A significant day in L.A. history uh, today, Jill, along with the Charlie Chaplin mystery that many of you may not know about.
1: And it's Friday, so we'll talk about what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. All I could say is here's a preview of my Saturday night. Chris Rock and trash can nachos.
0: Sounds amazing, Jill.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mosh, now to the murder trial that millions of people have been watching for weeks. A jury on Thursday night found disgraced South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdoch guilty of the double murder of his son and his wife. The jury deliberated for less than three hours after a trial that lasted nearly six weeks and included more than 70 witnesses, including Alex Murdoch himself, It's a case that chronicled the unraveling of a powerful Southern family with tales of privilege, greed, and addiction. It's already gotten documentary treatment on Netflix and HBO Max. Murdoch himself again testified in this case, which was a shock to pretty much everyone. I've heard this being compared to uh, as if OJ Simpson or Scott Peterson took the stand and testified in their own defense. It appears it didn't play very well with the jury. Let's back up a bit in case you have not been following this case. Alex Murdoch, a well-known and disbarred South Carolina lawyer, accused of killing his wife, Maggie, and his 22-year-old son, Paul, in June of 2021. The two were shot to death at the family's hunting estate in South Carolina. Murdoch repeatedly lied to investigators about where he was on the night that they were killed. So originally, he said that he was napping alone and that he last saw them alive about 90 minutes before discovering their bodies. But police later discovered a Snapchat video that his son had taken just minutes before his death. And you could hear Alex Murdoch in the background, which placed him at the crime scene about four minutes before his wife and son were killed. When he took the stand in the trial, he admitted that he did lie to investigators about not being at the scene, but he blamed it on having paranoid thoughts that stemmed from his drug addiction. He was addicted to opioids, but he still claimed that he was not present when they were killed. He said he left his home briefly to visit his mother who lived nearby. He claimed that he discovered his wife and his son that they were killed when he returned about an hour later. As for a motive here, prosecutors pointed to Murdoch's financial crimes in which he stole millions of dollars from his law firm and clients. And it was all about to be exposed. So prosecutors say that he was trying to maintain his lofty standing in the community. And so he killed his wife and his younger son in hopes that it would make him a sympathetic figure and draw attention away from the missing money. Those financial crimes would eventually be exposed a couple of months after the killings. When he took the stand, he did admit to stealing the money, but said again, he did not kill his wife and son.
0: Yeah, what I found particularly uh, powerful, Jill, in the prosecutor's closing statements was that Alex Murdoch loved his wife and loved his son, but he loved himself much more than any of them. And it appears that his testimony that, yes, I lied, uh, and yes, I committed all these financial crimes and uh, yes i did all these bad things but i definitely didn't kill my wife and son didn't necessarily play well with the jury here it was remarkable how quickly they came back 70 witnesses 6 weeks they entered the jury room they had their minds made up back under 3 hours he was not a very sympathetic figure at the same time though one of the reasons that a lot of folks are surprised is all the evidence here is circumstantial no murder weapon has ever been found there were no witnesses to the killing no dna evidence And so that was the challenge here for the prosecution. But they didn't have a tough time with all the lies he had told, his emotionless reaction at the murder scene that night, according to witnesses. And so Murdoch is 54 years old. He now faces 30 years to life in prison without parole for each murder charge, which means he will likely never see the light of day ever again. Court is scheduled to reconvene today. If you're listening to this after 9.30 a.m., that's when uh, court proceedings begin. And we'll get a better sense of the sentencing. And notably Murdoch himself was a civil litigator. He was a lawyer and he had experience convincing people of things, and he was attempting here to convince the jury that he did not commit these murders.
1: Motion. another reason that it was so surprising how quickly the jury came back is because during his testimony, some of the jurors you could see were actually really choked up. Some of them were crying. So it seemed like perhaps they were buying his story.
0: Yeah, I mean he he spoke very emotionally about, you know, his wife and son. Clearly, he felt for them. Uh, but the question is, what was he exactly up to on that night in June 2021, where he says he was taking a nap, then admits he was there with them, but left them just minutes before they were murdered, happened to go visit his mom, who happens to have dementia, come back. And the in the one hour he's gone, somebody proceeded to kill both of them, but it wasn't him. And he said that he went to go see them, Uh, and they were lying lifeless. But then suddenly when the police arrive after he calls 911, his clothes are completely clean. There's no blood on his clothes, even though he's been with the bodies. So there were just a lot of questions there. The state prosecutors in their closing arguments on Wednesday said basically, while Murdoch claims there's this mystery murderer out there, he is the only person who had the motive, the means, and the opportunity to kill his wife and son, and that his lies afterward betrayed him. I want to play just a quick, clip here of the prosecution as they made their closing argument you heard that maggie had no defensive wounds you also heard paul and sibling from that first shot a close range shot with no indication that he detected a threat from the person who fired that weapon and why because it was him same with maggie because maggie sees what happens and she comes running over there running to her baby jill it was really a powerful case by the prosecution here especially since again They didn't have the murder weapon. They didn't have DNA. They didn't have witnesses. And they had to go off of the circumstances.
1: And in another risky move, the defense actually had the jury go to the crime scene, which is also something that's pretty much unheard of. The prosecution was really against this. But in the end, I guess it wasn't enough to sway this jury.
0: Yeah, I would say, Jill, that uh, the defense here is pretty embarrassed by the fact that literally they run this six-week trial and the jury came back in less than three hours, which doesn't say much for the uh, case they were able to make.
1: There are a ton of layers to this case. So at the time of his death, Paul, the 22-year-old son, was actually awaiting his own trial in connection to a 2019 boat crash that killed a 19-year-old woman named Mallory Beach. He was charged with boating under the influence causing death and causing significant bodily injury in connection with the crash. Alex Murdoch said during his testimony... Paul got the most vile threats, the stuff that was on social media, you couldn't believe it, insinuating that the real killer was potentially tied to that case.
0: Yeah, and that's something that Alex Murdoch tried to begin to make the argument to, to the police on the night of the murders. He tried to already be like, ah, there's some other stuff going on with my family you guys should look at. He was trying to create a distraction here. It reminded me of the time in the 90s, Jill, of of OJ saying he was going to go out and find the real killer of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson. There is a long history here, Jill, as you mentioned, and other deaths that seem to haunt the family, one in particular that came up during this trial was the twenty eighteen death of the housekeeper of the Murdochs, uh, their nanny named Gloria Satterfield. Uh, allegedly she tripped on one of the family dogs and fell down the stairs. She later died in the hospital from head injuries. Her son testified at the trial saying that Alex Murdoch used his mother's death to steal millions of dollars that should have gone to their family, so Again, another situation here that did not make him a sympathetic figure uh, to the jury. And Jill, there's this other incredible story. I mean, there's so much out there. And if people are interested in this, go check out the Netflix doc, go check out the HBO doc. But in in the months following uh, the death of his wife and son, there were increasing uh, allegations about him stealing money from the law firm. And that all comes to a head in September, just a few months after the death in September, 2021, he basically is found out that he's stealing millions uh, from the law firm. So he then hires a hitman in a life insurance fraud scheme to shoot him in sort of an assisted suicide attempt. Uh, he survives it. Of course he is hit in the head. He was trying to get a life insurance policy for his son, but again, another, you know, kind of beyond belief situation here. And Murdoch likes to cite all of this stuff as part of his opioid addiction of which he's gone to rehab for. And that was sort of the thing that he blamed uh, for all of the questions over the last couple of years, he's like, well, uh, you know, I had an opioid addiction, so I'm going to blame it on that.
1: Mosh, you've got to feel for um, the Murdoch's other son. His name is Buster. He actually testified in his dad's defense. And whatever you think of the father, he has now lost his mom, his brother, and now his dad is likely going to spend the rest of his life in jail.
0: Jail is just heartbreaking. All right, we have a lot more to get to in this podcast, including the speed read, but let's thank our sponsors this week. I want to start with Blinkist. I've been using the Blinkist app for more than a year now as a quick way to get summaries of books I either want to read or need a quick refresher on. It's essentially audio notes. Blinkist gives you the rundown of the book, everything you need to know, in 15 minutes. I like to listen to them on my commutes or while working out. Right now, they're offering more than 5,500 book summaries and podcast summaries, and it's a whole range of topics, politics, parenting, leadership, investing. You know those books you often see uh, in the bookstore or online, you know, Nine Ways to Get Smarter on This or seven tactics you can use to be better at that. And sometimes you can't get around to reading them. Well, Blinkist offers a lot of those. So I really enjoy them along with their curated collections, expert-led guides, allows you to grow a little more every day while on the go. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for the Mo News audience. You can head over to Blinkist.com mo News. That is Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, like in a blink. Blinkist.com mo news. You'll get a seven-day free trial, 40% off the Blinkist Premium Membership, Again, that is blinkist.com slash news to get 40% off and a seven day free trial on a premium membership. Check it out. All right, let's talk about another incredibly helpful sponsor this week. I want to introduce all of you to Apostrophe. It's an online platform that connects you with expert dermatologists that allow you to get customized treatment for your unique skin. Apostrophe is very convenient. It offers virtual dermatology consultations, uh, everything from acne to dark spots. Sometimes getting a dermatology appointment, as you know, can take a while. I know I have found that. So what Apostrophe is offering here is something that is simple to use and can be done from home. If you head over to apostrophe.com slash news, you can get started today. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and they will connect you with a board-certified dermatologist that will create an initial customized treatment plan. And they're offering a special deal for the news audience right now. You can get your first visit for only $5 over at apostrophe.com slash news. You'll also have an opportunity to get a discount on medication with the MoNews code. Again, to get started, apostrophe.com slash MoNews. Click get started and you'll get your first visit for only $5.
1: Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start with the wild weather out west from AccuWeather. California declares state of emergency in 13 counties after brutal winter storm traps residents. Some residents still trapped inside their homes after a winter storm dumped feet of snow across the Golden State more than 100 inches in some places over the course of the week, prompting Governor Gavin Newsom to issue states of emergencies in San Bernardino County, L.A. County, Santa Barbara, amongst others. In San Bernardino County, authorities say they conducted almost 100 rescues the good news, though, is they say they have not learned of any serious injuries or deaths. Officials say they responded to medical calls, fires and trapped vehicles, people have trees through their houses or some sort of roof collapse and had to be evacuated. About 70,000 homes and businesses are still without power, or at least were early Thursday, days after the first rounds of winter storms hit California. And while the state is getting a brief reprieve from the snow through the end of the week, another system is expected to move into Northern California this weekend.
0: Jill, notably, they said it could take a week to 10 days to dig out certain mountain communities out of the heavy snow. I mean, these are some areas, some of them never get snow. Some of them get some snow, but some of them do not see this amount of snow. The images are really remarkable. Uh, Even at low levels, you know, I posted the image on Instagram, Jill, of the Hollywood sign with like snow-capped mountains behind it. You never see that. Now, if you live in Utah or Colorado, that's something you're used to. In the Hollywood sign, to see snow behind it is, is really uh, something unique. Uh, the big concern, though, are those areas where people have been stuck. The National Guard is helping dig out snowbound communities in the mountains. There are about 500 miles of tight, winding roads throughout mountain areas that need to be plowed. And again, they don't have the amount of plows that a Wisconsin or a Minnesota uh, has in these areas of Southern California, especially avalanches are another concern. Residents in a three-story apartment building in Olympic Valley had to be evacuated earlier this week when it was struck by an avalanche. And again, these snow totals are really remarkable. Huntington Lake up in the Sierra Nevada uh, saw 144 inches of snow in Southern California. 106 inches of snow were recorded at Mount Baldy. That's outside of L.A., and these numbers continue and continue. And, and there will be a lot more precipitation they expect in the coming weeks. And just based on the last few months, Jill, uh, I looked this up today based on the National Drought Monitor. Half of California now, I guess this is the good news, if you're not snowbound right now, the latest survey found that moderate or severe drought still covers about 49% of the state. Uh, but three months ago, virtually all of California was in drought, including a lot of areas in extreme or exceptional levels those are the highest levels of drought. So the, all these atmospheric rivers and storms that have been coming in these past couple months have really alleviated a situation that people were very worried about this summer that there were going to be rationing of water across the state. So at least for now, it appears that this barrage of, of snowstorms and rain, there is something positive at the end here.
1: From CNN, the FBI says a Michigan man threatened on social media to kill Jewish members of the Michigan government, State Attorney General Dana Nessel says she was among those targeted. On February 18th, a person on Twitter said that he was heading to Michigan and, quote, threatening to carry out the punishment of death to anyone that is Jewish in the Michigan government and that any attempt to subdue him would be met with deadly force in self-defense. Authorities quickly traced that Twitter account to a man named Jack Eugene Carpenter III, He had a protection order against him and had previously been arrested by state police. Carpenter also had three nine millimeter handguns registered in Michigan and multiple other weapons. One of the guns in his possession he had stolen from a girlfriend. He was arrested that day in Texas. Carpenter admitted to investigators that he wanted to target certain officials and that the Michigan attorney general was among them.
0: So after the FBI observed the threatening tweet as they were trying to identify him and they eventually find him in Texas, as you mentioned, the Bureau partnered with the Jewish community leaders in Michigan to identify and notify Jewish politicians across the state that they could be a target. They took this very seriously. The incident adds to recent concerns about threats against public officials, as well as increasing reports of anti-Semitic incidents across the country. This does evoke, especially in Michigan, the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, a couple of years ago of which there has since been a trial and some people have been prosecuted for it. As for Carpenter, he will be back in court today. That's where prosecutors will be arguing for his continued detention. They are concerned that he might flee because he actually believes he is not subject to the jurisdiction of this court. Carpenter is part of what's called the growing sovereign citizen movement. These are people who believe they don't belong to America. They are declaring their own state. And so he actually posted a declaration of sovereignty on Twitter he said he lives in a country named New Israel. It has a nine mile radius around a certain Michigan address. That address, the FBI has identified as his home. He has declared his home as the center of this new country that he claims to live in. So uh, needless to say, prosecutors will be saying, keep this guy behind bars, please. Jill, as I was digging into Carpenter, it appears he worked at your alma mater, the University of Michigan, for <laughs> the last 10 years. The university acknowledges that he was an employee from June 2011 till December 2021, until he was fired. He was a systems administrator uh, at the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts.
1: Which explains why you asked me before this podcast if I went to the College of Literature, (laughs) Science, and the Arts. I'm like, what are you doing an investigation into my background after we've been working together for years? (laughs) I'm just concerned.
0: I I was just concerned that you might have interacted with this guy while you were back in (laughs) Michigan back in the day. But it looks like he worked there after you were there.
1: Um, Meanwhile, the threat against Nassau and other members of Michigan's state government is the latest of several high-profile threats and violence against Jews in America. Last month, a man was charged by federal prosecutors with hate crimes after he allegedly shot two different Jewish men in Los Angeles. In January, police said that a man threw a Molotov cocktail at a New Jersey synagogue in an arson attempt. And in December, a man was assaulted in New York's Central Park.
0: Yeah, law enforcement across the country, unfortunately, is on very high alert for this sort of thing.
1: From The New York Times, the House Ethics Committee announced Thursday that it had opened an investigation into Representative George Santos, the embattled Republican from New York, under scrutiny for lies. Just congressman, everybody. Yes. congressman. <laughs> Moshe, I'm just connected to all of these stories today. Yeah. He is under scrutiny for lies about his background and questions about his campaign finances. The inquiry will cover several areas where Santos has been accused of financial or sexual misconduct. The committee said in a statement that it would seek to determine whether Santos had failed to properly disclose information on his House financial disclosures, violated federal conflict of interest laws, or engaged in other unlawful activity during his 2022 congressional campaign. It will also examine an allegation of sexual misconduct from a prospective congressional aide who briefly worked in his office.
0: Are they also looking into the bad checks he uh, gave to the puppy mill in Pennsylvania and then sold the puppies? Joe, there's so much to investigate on this
1: guy. <laughs> um, but... Okay, Moshe, the question, though, is what will happen depending on what they find out. So the committee can, in rare instances, recommend that a congressperson be removed from office. That's only happened, though, five times in more than 200 years. Mostly the committee just hands out fines or issues rebukes. Technically, it would take two thirds of House members to vote to expel him.
0: Right. This is what Speaker McCarthy, you know, he's a Republican. Santos is one of his Republicans, has been waiting on. Uh, So we will see how long it takes the House Ethics Committee to come back, what they come back with, what they recommend. And again, if they recommend expulsion, rare, it would then require two thirds of the House to vote on this. Santos, for his part on Twitter, says he's fully cooperating with the investigation. He won't comment further. The House Ethics Committee is evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. They've not created that special committee just to investigate him. So we will continue to monitor that. Uh, Of course, if he's expelled at some point, Jill, uh, constituents like you over there in New York's third (laughs) district, it's the third district. Yes. Yes. We'll have a chance to likely vote on a replacement. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because Santos is made out of Teflon, it appears, at least so far.
1: It's a great way to put it. He has expressed no intention of leaving. In fact, I've heard that he wants to run for reelection.
0: He sort of lives in Santos land. He's the president (laughs) of Santos land, New Santos. Sort of similar to that last story. Jill, I want to stay in Washington here for a second. One other story we were watching on Thursday, the U.S. Justice Department officially determined on Thursday that former President Trump can be held liable in court for actions that took place on January 6th. According to the Justice Department, speaking to the public on matters of public concern is a traditional function of the presidency. It does not include, however, incitement of imminent private violence. Basically, his rhetoric went too far on January 6th. What this means, two officers from the U.S. Capitol Police, joined by 11 Democratic House members, are right now seeking to hold Trump liable for physical and psychological injuries they suffered during January 6th riots. Trump has argued that he is protected from the lawsuit and has absolute immunity conferred on a president performing official duties. The Justice Department here disagrees. So we'll see what happens here. Interestingly, this lawsuit that's been filed by the Capitol Police officers, by these Democratic House members, falls under a statute written just after the Civil War that had to do with the KKK that does allow for damages when force, threats, or intimidation are used to prevent government officials from carrying out their duties.
1: Now to the environment from the independent scientists said this week that Antarctica sea ice has likely shrunk to a record low, raising concerns that the climate crisis is increasingly destabilizing the frozen continent. The 2023 minimum is the lowest in 45 years of satellite record keeping. So the South Pole region has so far escaped the accelerated melting that's taking place on the ice sheets of Greenland and the Arctic. Researchers say the downward trend in sea ice may be a signal that global warming is finally affecting the floating ice around Antarctica, but it will take several more years to be confident of it.
0: Jill, last year was the fifth or sixth warmest uh, year on record, and that's despite the La Nina weather pattern that's supposed to have a cooling effect on things. The melting has increased over the past decade. With less sea ice comes more danger to these big glaciers and whether they will break off. The issue with the melting is the dark ocean water absorbs more of the sun's heat that would typically bounce off of white ice. So the less white ice there is, the more we're kind of taking in the sun's rays and it's leading to continuing warming. And that latest reporting comes as we also got new global CO2 emission data, uh, how much carbon dioxide is going to the air for the year 2022. Officially, global CO2 emissions rose to a record last year as the combustion of fossil fuels continued to put the world on track for a dangerous level of continued global warming here. Data from the International Energy Agency shows the biggest increase came from Asia's emerging markets, in large part due to coal-fired power. And by the way, it could have been worse with China's shutdowns due to COVID restrictions and some less productivity in Europe. Uh, We actually didn't see as much as we could have in 2022. So that's, partially good news, I guess. In the U.S., emissions grew uh, as well by about 0.8%, especially as we had exceptionally cold weather at the beginning of the year last year that boosted heating demand. And so as we start to have more of these extreme weather events, that obviously has an impact on how much power we're using and, of course, how much more emissions we're putting into the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, overall, the report shows that extreme weather events contributed to about 20 percent of last year's growth in emissions. Many countries saw increased demand for air conditioning, a trend that's likely to persist as climate change makes heat waves more intense and more frequent. All right, we've got some news from ancient Egypt. CBS News reports that a hidden tunnel has just been discovered within the Great Pyramid of Giza, The 30-foot-long corridor located on the north face of the 4,500-year-old pyramid and could lead to new discoveries within. A team of international archaeologists made that announcement on Thursday. A top Egyptian archaeologist calls the discovery the most important discovery in the 21st century. Mosh, this is everything that you are about. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> breaking news on a 4,500-year-old pyramid in the Middle East. I have a lot to say about this, Jill. Yeah, and it just so happens that uh, w- my wife and I visited Egypt and were inside the Great Pyramid just about eight months ago. So I have a couple details there. But first, to this new discovery. So they believe that this corridor they discovered is protecting or reducing pressure on something beneath it. And it might be a chamber. It might even be the chamber that holds the pharaoh Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid for himself. So this discovery was made as part of what's called SCAN Pyramids. It's a project that started a few years ago that uses a technique called cosmic ray-moon radiography to investigate what lies within the pyramid without causing any destruction. The technique relies on radiation fired through the pyramid by reading the radiation that arrives at detectors placed around the pyramids. Scientists can then infer the internal structures within the monument, again, without impacting it. Uh, That top Egyptian archaeologist, his name is Zahi Hawass, uh, he's been around for years. He's one of those that believes this could be the real burial chamber for Khufu. Because if you, by the way, you go inside the Great Pyramid, there's nothing to see there. Uh, you know, grave robbers and pyramid robbers centuries ago, millennia ago, cleared out a lot of those uh, pyramids, which is one of the reasons they stopped building pyramids for these pharaohs, because they were realizing that people could easily spot them in the middle of the desert and then steal all the belongings that they were buried with.
1: Moshe, as you mentioned, you were at the Great Pyramid last summer. What did you learn while you were there?
0: So it's interesting, Jill, because you realize that the pharaohs went through phases. I mean, you talk about ancient Egypt, you're talking about thousands of years of history. The pyramid phases only last a certain amount of time because, again, the pharaohs discovered, you know, for the pharaohs, they would live 30, 40 years typically. And for the afterlife was the most important thing. So they would be buried with their pets, with their slaves, with their uh, advisors, uh, with all the belongings, the chariots they need in the afterlife, the food, the beer they need in the afterlife. and But then they stopped building these pyramids because, again, people would spot them, dig into them, and so they would create these secret chambers within the pyramid, which is one of the things that we think we found here. So then later years, if you go down to Luxor, Egypt, which is where we also went, uh, they would bury themselves in basically in the mountainside. There's the Valley of the Kings and Valley of the Queens, And there'd be no detection of where where they were buried, right? They're just literally in the the mountainside. They cover up where the burial chamber is. And of course, grave robbers would find some of those, but they didn't find all of them. That's actually one of the reasons why King Tut is so famous. He wasn't a great pharaoh. He died very young. We don't know much about what he did. What we do know about him uh, is that they were never able to find his burial chamber. That wasn't found until the 20th century. So we learned a lot about him. What's cool also about the Great Pyramid, and I could go on for a while and I'll stop in a second. This actually was the (laughs) tallest structure humans built for about 4,000 years until the Eiffel Tower. So basically, go to 2500 BC until 1889. This was the tallest man-made structure in the world until the Eiffel Tower, which is pretty remarkable. And one other thing I'll say, whenever you look at pictures of the Great Pyramid, you'll see the Giza Complex is three different pyramids. And the one in the middle that you think is the Great Pyramid, it actually appears on the back of the $1 bill. It's the one with that like an extra crown on top. It's the extra casting, the, uh, the original exterior. That was actually that one in the middle that looks taller, was built by Khufu's son, Khafre. Khafre was the son. He actually made his pyramid shorter than his dad, but he picked a plot of land next to it that was higher up. So he sort of still had the tallest pyramid, was still uh, out of deference to his father. But the Great Pyramid is actually the one all the way to the left. The one in the middle that you think is the Great Pyramid actually belongs to the sun. All right, that brings us to On This Day in History. Sticking with history here, 92 years ago today, 1931, the Star-Spangled Banner, written by Francis Scott Key during back in the War of 1812, more than 100 years later, was officially adopted as the national anthem of the U.S. Yes, for the first 150 years of U.S. history uh, or thereabouts. The Star-Spangled Banner was not our national anthem. We had four different ones before that. The main one that was used for a while was My Country Tis of Thee. Incidentally, ironically, the same hymn as God Save the King. My Country Tis of Thee.
1: Moshe, why is that? It kind of makes no sense.
0: (laughs) So So the person who wrote it based it on a German hymn, what he thought was a German hymn, but the Germans had actually taken the hymn from the Brits. And somehow we just continued to sing it despite breaking away from Britain. Our effective national anthem for a while was My Country Tis of Thee to the same tune as God Save the King.
1: Those Americans.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, fast forwarding here to the 1990s. On this day in history, 32 years ago in 1991, the tragic police beating of L.A. motorist Rodney King took place. Uh, We are thankful to George Holliday. He's the person behind the camcorder that recorded it all without that tape. There likely would not have been a trial or any ramifications. Even so, though, in that trial, the four officers that were charged with using excessive force, three of them were acquitted. The jury failed to reach a verdict on the 4th. That then led within hours to the LA riots in 1992 that sparked six days of riots, 63 deaths. It reinforced the tensions in LA uh, between law enforcement, uh, and Black civilians that have been taking place for years. And one lesser-known story I want to tell everyone about today, on this day 45 years ago, in 1978, March 1978, two months after he was buried, Charlie Chaplin's body was stolen from the cemetery, sparking a uh, massive police investigation. So on March 3rd, 1978, uh, two thieves uh, dug up and stole the body of Charlie Chaplin. And they then sent a ransom letter to his family demanding just about, million in today's money. The family refused to pay it. Uh, The police conducted a several-week investigation. They eventually found two auto mechanics who were in desperate need of money. Uh, They then led the police to a cornfield nearby where they had buried Chaplin's body. Uh, They would eventually be put on trial. Chaplin's body returned to the family. Chaplin's family then uh, reburied his body in a concrete grave to prevent any future theft attempts. But just that is sort of a, a crazy story that most of us don't know about Charlie Chaplin. And before we go here, uh, happy 100th birthday today to Time Magazine, Jill. The first issue of the weekly news magazine was published on this day in 1923.
1: My friends and I all used to get Time Magazine delivered to us when we were in college. You can't imagine that many college kids are getting that magazine <laughs> delivered anymore, right?
0: What are the youths doing today? The Gen Z <laughs> youths. They're on TikTok and they're... Wait, hold on. I haven't gotten my issue of Time Magazine. I wonder who they're putting. It was a big deal, though. I remember one of my first jobs in media, I was a researcher for Chris Wallace at Fox News Sunday. And it was my job to get in there at like 3 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning on Sundays. And I would be awaiting the, the covers of Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, and Time Magazine to see like, what they've determined the coverage story is this week. And that was still not that long ago. That was still less than 20 years ago. Um, Pretty remarkable. Jill, when I think about Time Magazine, I always think about the Zoolander clip. Unfortunately for you, not too many people I know read your little Time Magazine or whatever it's called. Derek Zoolander, they're ahead of his time, Jill.
1: Okay, Mosh, it is Friday, which means cheers to the freaking weekend. Time to look at what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend I will kick it off. I plan to watch Chris Rock's comedy special on Netflix. It's called Selective Outrage. He's going to be performing the stand-up special live from Baltimore at 7 p.m. Pacific time. 10 p.m Eastern time so yes I will definitely it's past your need bedtime Jill. I was gonna say I definitely need an app at some point um this is Netflix's first ever live event it's rock's second special for Netflix you can watch it though just like you would any other Netflix show you'll be able to rewind or pause I was about to say you could fast forward but clearly you can't fast forward if it's <laughs> if it's live <laughs> um the big question though is what exactly is he gonna say about will smith's oscar slap we're finally gonna get to hear what he's been saying on his comedy tour about it right
0: right a lot of comedy shows they make you put your phone in a bag and you know you don't get to record it they're very serious about that these days so i have heard from a few folks that they've heard his whole spiel um on the slap by the way can you believe the slap was a year ago at this point no. like <laughs> i wonder what he's gonna say about the slap you're like dude it's been a year like get with it but clearly you know live event we'll see what he says uh I uh, I don't think I have any other plans Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, so I'll be watching as well. Apparently they're doing a 30-minute tribute before the show with Leslie Jones, Arsenio Hall, uh, before the show. And then after the show, David Spade and Dana Carvey, two of Chris Rock's former SNL mates, will be hosting a uh, post-show special. Jill, before we get to next week's edition of what we're watching, uh, I should note that Season 4 Part 2 of You is available on Netflix starting next Thursday. And no, Netflix is not sponsoring the segment.
1: <laughs> Moshe, I do want to mention that the post-show and pre-show for Chris Rock, you can only watch it live. Oh. So if you want to watch it, you have to watch it in real time. Look, at, look I do at feel ne- like Netflix should pay us, honestly.
0: So you know what Netflix is becoming? Regular television. Like that's like, <laughs> Netflix is like, you know, you know, we're Netflix, we're something new. And you're like, no, Netflix, you're just becoming like TV. We're doing totally. special live pre-shows and post-shows that you can only watch live. Like, okay, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen this. I think I've seen this before.
1: Welcome to 1960, right? Like that, <laughs> that's basically called the beginning of television.
0: Right. Next looks like we have this new idea. We're calling commercials. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> they that too. All right, Jill, what are you reading this week?
1: Okay, from Tablet Magazine, The Vanishing, The Erasure of Jews from American Life. The piece opens by saying you feel it like a slow moving pressure system an anxiety of exclusion and downward mobility. Maybe you first noticed it at your workplace or maybe it hit when you or your children applied to college or graduate school. It could have been something as simple as opening up the Netflix splash page. It's gauche to count, but you can't help yourself in academia, Hollywood, Washington, even in New York City, anywhere American Jews once made their mark. Our influence is in a steep decline. Uh, I have this piece bookmarked, and I, I don't want to say I look forward to reading it because it seems a little bit um, depressing, but I, I, I will be reading it this weekend.
0: All right, we'll link to that in the show notes. Jill, I just finished a book and interviewed the author for a special edition of this podcast. We put it out uh, yesterday, so definitely uh, line it up this weekend if you have time. It's an interview with Steve Krakauer. He's the author of Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Principles, and lost the people. Uh, we talked all about the state of the media these days, where we've gone awry. Uh, Steve uh, spent years at CNN and other networks. Uh, we've all sort of taken parallel tracks. Um, all of us, you know, having worked in uh, kind of traditional mainstream news, and now having gone independent, which he has as well. But he took time to write this book and really delve into the issues uh, the media is facing, where it went awry when it came to Trump, COVID, uh, geographical bias. Um, all the various issues that are afflicting the media and unfortunately having an impact on trust. You know, we've talked on this podcast before in other episodes, but the fact that, you know, data shows that only a third of Americans are trusting the news and information they're getting. And so he dives into that and asks why, uh, what went wrong. But also uh, at the end, there is some good news. Like here are things the media can do uh, to fix things. And so we'll link to his book in the show notes. And again, if you can, you're interested in, in this subject matter, and I imagine many Mo News listeners are, uh, take a listen to the podcast episode. We dropped it yesterday.
1: Mosh, my favorite part of this segment, what are you eating?
0: I'm really into Sieta chips. They have a whole bunch of flavors. They keep adding more. I'm really into Fuego and barbecue right now. My wife, Alex, introduced me to these a while back, and we sort of become addicted. But uh, Sienna chips, they got some. They got some good flavors out there. Jill, what do you? What eating? are
1: they like? Healthy chips?
0: They're like healthier chips. Yes.
1: Okay, so I'm going to basically be eating the opposite of that. Um, <laughs> 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 it's what's called trash can nachos. What? Okay, so this is my friend Dana's recipe. Not to name drop, it's Dana Pollock of Dana's Bakery. She makes those amazing. Mookies is what she calls them. They're cookies and macaroons. Anyway, she posted this recipe to Instagram ahead of the Super Bowl, and I've been meaning to try it. Um, it's inspired by Guy Fieri's garbage pail creation. So you basically layer your chips and toppings in a way that makes sure that each chip has some sort of flavor. As Dana says, it solves her biggest pet peeve with nachos, those dry, neglected chips oh, at the bottom. Oh, the sad
0: chips. Yeah. It's so depressing.
1: So I am going to link to her recipe on my Instagram feed, but I'm very excited to try these out.
0: Yeah, I think whoever can come up with a strategy, and maybe it's these, that like will ensure that every chip in the nacho has some sort of topping on it, that person deserves to be president. That person, <laughs> in fact, if they live in the third district of New York, should be the next congressperson when they kick Santos out.
1: It's certainly a good platform to run on. I, I think everyone <laughs> can agree that dry chips on the bottom of the nachos are just a no-no
0: yeah and then some of them like have the melted dried cheese on it and you're like oh this could <laughs> be good and i'm still hungry and it's never that good
1: you just have to slather it in sour cream or whatever you could possibly find Whatever's on the table left. the guac exactly. is gone
0: the guac is gone at that point <laughs> all you have left is dried cheese and sour cream and you're gonna maybe make it some work.
1: salsa actually <laughs>
0: <laughs> take a picture let us know how it goes Joe.
1: I will. All right, everybody. That is a wrap. Uh, We want to thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow.
0: And beyond the pod, don't forget to uh, follow us on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H, where this all started for the latest and greatest. You never know what the weekend (laughs) may bring. We'll bring you some headlines. Last week, we went in deep on Lyndon Johnson and weird things he did during his presidency. I'll leave it at that. The people who know, know but uh follow us over there otherwise we'll
1: see you next week all right bye everybody thank you for listening for the mo news podcast okay thank you for listening to the mo news podcast thank you for listening to the mo news podcast (laughs) okay one more time and then we're good thank you for listening for the mo news podcast That was perfect.